Well, that's quite a lengthy passage, but hopefully that uh, the Visual Bible will help us a little bit just follow what is taking place here in the church. You know, what's exciting <coughs> is to stop and realize that we are all part of this history and that what took place here, you know, 2,000 years ago almost is a part of the history that we now continue to live out in the church. This morning, I'd like to just quickly review and, and just remind us again what's happened in the story because the book of Acts is a story of the history of the early church. So, just briefly, what we have is Christ, as we know, raises from the dead. He's crucified. He raises from the dead and He ascends into heaven. We have 120 believers who are waiting for 10 days and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and the church in Jerusalem just explodes. Predominantly Jewish people. And so the church grows to about 15,000 people and then all of a sudden persecution arises and the whole church is scattered throughout all of the land, three, four hundred miles north of Jerusalem. And uh, all over the church is scattered abroad. And we see that Saul, who is part of the persecution, is heading to Damascus to pursue the Christians. And at that point, an amazing thing in history happens. Saul is converted. God strikes him down, appears to him in a vision on the road, and a tremendous transformation takes place in the life of Saul, who was also, as we know, will be called Paul. And then in the next step, what we have is Peter is being... Uh, several miraculous things happen to help Peter convince the church that the gospel is not just for the Jews. And so in these passages where we are right now, chapters 10 and 11 and 12, is really about the gospel going not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so we have the text this morning. I'd like to just walk through, kind of, the, in, and take it in some big chunks here so we can understand what's happening. Uh, verses 19 to 26, we see that those who were scattered, that they... They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. There's a map up here. Chris, if you want to throw that up. Just to give you an idea, and there's a scale of miles there, but you can see from... Actually, Phoenicia is north of Jerusalem, about 150 miles. And then you have Antioch, which is up there, about 300 miles or so north of Jerusalem. And then you have Cyprus. You can see there, just off to the left. So. We're talking about Christians being scattered three, four hundred miles, which is a very long distance in that day. We find that, you know, it was interesting, because I'd never quite figured out in, in the Jerusalem church why, you know, there was this problem with feeding the, the Hellenistic widows, which were the Greek-speaking Jewish people. These people were Jews, but culturally they were Gentiles. And so... You know, in the early church, these seven deacons were called, and they were Hellenistic, they were Greek-speaking Jews, and they just kind of got called to this position, and the church was scattered. Well, it was these men, these Hellenistic leaders, who were the ones now that were spreading the gospel in these other areas, in Antioch, specifically, we see this morning. And so, you know, at the time, I'm sure it didn't make sense, but now we can see that God knew exactly what he was doing in scattering those 
uh, Greek-speaking Jews. And we find here that there is a, there's a very important movement that takes place of, of God's Spirit. And many Greek-speaking Gentiles and many Gentiles are coming to Christ. In fact, so many that they're going to go down, we'll see later on, they go down they get Paul, and they bring him up to help disciple these new believers. Now in chapter 12, Herod enters the scene. Uh, I'm not going to spend time this way. We don't have time to spend on the little, there's a little section there on the famine that was predicted. But jumping down to chapter 12, we have King Herod. This is the grandson of Herod the Great who killed all the babies at the time of Jesus. We see Satan here at work through these political powers. And uh, in the great temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, we know that Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. So we see that his influence is experienced here in the early church. And here we have the first disciple who's killed. And this is James. He's one of those inner three, you know, Peter, James, and John. He was evidently very influential because this is the one that Herod picked to uh, kill. And this was probably around 44 AD, just over 10 years after Christ had ascended. Well, the next thing that happens is, after James is executed and, and martyred, we see that Peter is captured in verses 6 through 19. It's a seven-day feast, so they keep him in prison. And on the very last night, before he would be brought out on trial, he is rescued miraculously in, in the story that we see there. And it's an amazing story. It's so amazing that Peter can't believe it until he's out in the courtyard and eventually realizes it's not a dream. We see then Peter heads off and, of course, needs to leave town and heads off to another location. And then we end up in chapter 12, verses 20 through 25, with this account of Herod. There's been tension between a couple of coastal cities, and we see here that Herod gets together to make peace with them, and he stands up. Let me just... Let me just read you a couple of uh, writings here that are just of interest. Let me just back up a moment to the, to the death of James. This is written by CBS. And what we find, according to tra tradition, is that the guard that was escorting James to, that was guarding him and escorting him to be beheaded, was so impressed by the demeanor and the life of James that he was converted on the way. Let me read what happened. Then the accuser of the apostles, this is written by um, Clement of Alexandria, the accuser of the apostle, beholding his confession and moved thereby, confessed that he too was a Christian. And so they were both led away to the execution together. And on the road, the accuser asked James for forgiveness. Gazing on him for a while, he said, Peace be with thee. And he kissed him. And then... They were both beheaded together. Powerful. Powerful witness, obviously, going on in the life of this man. And then just one other some just interesting fact as we, as we read back in some of the early writings is this account of Herod who comes, and, and what they tell us is that he was, he was standing before the people and he was in a robe made of silver filament. And the sun was shining on this robe and... It was 
You know, he appeared to be almost a glow, and the crowd stood up and started to hail him as a god. And so, let me write here, let me read to you from the account from the ancient apostles written in about 158. He says, The smiting of Herod by the angel was with a dreadful disease such as had caused the death of his grandfather. He was carried from the theater to his palace <clears throat> where he lingered five days in agony until death closed his life in the 54th year of his age. It was the fourth of his reign over the region where he had ruled, where his grandfather had ruled, whose wicked example he had followed to a like inglorious end. It says, when in the theater the scene was suddenly changed from the gladiatorial and other wicked amusements to the judgment of the king, the multitude fled, rending their clothes according to the custom in absolute horror. <clears throat> so this was a very powerful event. And uh, we see here that God steps in and brings about judgment in the heart of this man. <clears throat> well, what are some, a couple of, I want to just make a few observations this morning as, as we look at this uh, text. And <clears throat> here's the first one. The first thing that we see is the importance of mission. The importance of the mission. The number one reason why <coughs> God saved you... Can I, can I get a glass of water? I'm having a little... I uh, <coughs> appreciate it. You know, the reason that God saved us was to be in relationship to Him. I think that's the number one reason why God saved you, is so that you could know Him. I think that stands above any other reason. However, the reason why we're here and we're not with Him is because of mission. It's because God is working out a plan of redemption and we as His people are part of that plan and part of that work. You know, if it wasn't for mission, I don't think we would be here. You know, what is really the purpose in us being here as people? Thank you. <coughs> <clears throat> I'd like to share a scenario here because I think this was a very difficult time <clears throat> for the early church. I don't think we stop and think about what this was really like. So let me just put it in context. Just imagine. And uh, <clears throat> I'll pick, I'm going to pick on Bob this morning. But let's imagine that... Uh, let's imagine that... Bob was taken, captured with several other believers, and taken to the local prison. What do you think, as a church, we would be doing? I think we'd be here praying. I think this place would have people every night gathering to pray for Bob and for his release and for his safety and for the other Christians as well. So I want you to imagine, here you are, the Christians are all, play, are all praying, and Bob's family is there, and his kids are here, and someone comes in and says, I'd, I'd like to speak to Cindy and, and Bob's children, just alone. They leave the room, someone comes, comes back in and says, I'm sorry to inform you, but Bob's been killed. Well, just imagine, <clears throat> I mean, here's a leader in the church, uh, just imagine what that would feel like. 
Just imagine the emotions that went along with that when they heard that here's James who has now been killed. Well, the next day, and I'll pick on somebody else, our brother Mike Rafflick is, is taken to prison. And again, everyone gets together and prays, and it's seven days, and nothing happens, and it's the last day before his trial, and everyone is on their knees praying. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this prayer meeting, there's a knock at the door, and we discover that Mike has been miraculously rescued. And Bob's children are there, and Cindy are there. And, of course, they're happy, but let me ask you, what's going on in their minds? What are they thinking? So, my dad gets his head chopped off, and Peter gets rescued. So how does that work? Didn't, were we praying better for Peter? Was Peter more spiritual? You know, there's this, there's this tension. And I'm sure it was a challenge for the people to, to get their heads around this. And you know what? This happens all the time. You know, you hear stories from Haiti and the earthquake. Of, you know, I heard of one church that was up in the mountains on retreat. And they were just praising God because God had spared them and God had miraculously rescued them. You know, others had prayed and found you know, children alive, and yet others were found burying their children. Other whole churches were demolished. And so we, we live with this, you know, you know, we live in our world with this, and I think it was a challenge for the early church as it is for us to sometimes make sense of why God responds here and He doesn't respond there. And, and I think it has to do with mission. You know, if the reason God takes us out of here from, you know, if He does take us out of here from the mission He's called us to, then, then the part of the mission He wanted us to play is probably, we've probably completed it. If He takes us to Himself, then the reason He had left us here for this mission is, is, is completed. And so, perhaps it's not about who prayed the hardest. Or who's the most spiritual. But maybe it's about what God has decided for us to do here on this earth. Maybe that's really what our lives are all about. And, and perhaps the best counsel for, for James' family would have you know, said to say, hey, we are so sorry about your dad. But you need to know he was a great man and he completed everything that God called him to do in the church. If he hadn't, God wouldn't have taken him home. And Peter, God still has stuff for him to do. This is about mission. It's not about God loving one person more than another. It's not about necessarily praying harder than the other. This is about God's plan for each person and for his mission through each of our lives. This is not the first difficult thing for the church to understand. You know, why did the church blow up in Jerusalem and everybody gets scattered? It was because of mission. It's because of the mission. You know, why did those seven deacons get scattered? Again, we see now it's because of the mission. You know, why was Saul allowed to persecute the church and then so dramatically changed? It's because of mission. 
what God had called him to do. You know, it's not a bad thing to be called home. It's not a bad thing to be called home. But until then, we're here to walk with God, accomplishing the work that he has for us to do in the world. And, you know, that's what, that's what Paul said. He said, you know, the best thing for me would be to go home. But for your sake, Paul said, God has called me to stay and continue to run the race that he set before me. So, the first thing we see here is, and we're seeing in the book of Acts continuously, is the importance of the mission that God has called us to. And we kind of have the things that we would like to see happen, but God's more interested in the big mission. And so He works to that end. And, you know, the sooner we can submit our lives to that, you know, the sooner we can experience the peace and rest, even in the midst of circumstances that often don't make sense in our lives. Here's the second thing. The second thing we see here is the importance, not only of mission, but we see the importance of prayer. And we see this continually through the book of Acts. Whenever God's preparing to work, and there's a crisis, we see that people pray. The first thing they do is pray. We see this radical dependency upon God. These people were changing the world, and they had, you know, they had no training, they had no seminaries, they had no church buildings, they had no Bibles. Uh, they didn't have any of this stuff. <clears throat> but God, through His Spirit, <clears throat> was changing them, and they were utterly dependent upon God to work in the context in which they live. And so, we see mission and, and this prayerful dependency upon God must always go together. If we're trying to do mission without prayerful dependency, we're going to end up just working in our own effort. If all we do is pray, and we're not about mission and going out, then God says, you know what? Your prayers are not getting anywhere, as we saw last week. If you're not trying to break the cords of injustice and help the poor and the hungry and the oppressed, then your prayer meetings are of no avail. <clears throat> you know, the account here of answered prayer is, is really kind of, it's a little bit humorous because it's so like us because God answers their prayers and they can't believe it. You know, they can't believe it's happened. And, in fact, Peter can't even believe it's happened and it's happening to him. Until he's in the courtyard and all of a sudden he realizes it's really happening. And so, lest we be too critical of those early Christians who didn't believe it, uh, you know, we're a lot like that ourselves. I can see, you know, here they were just a week ago, they've been praying for James and look what happened. Perhaps the best they were expecting is maybe that Peter's life would be spared or something like that would happen. But this miraculous escape from prison, they, you know, it was far beyond what they expected. Every once in a while, God surprises us beyond what we're expected. I was visiting last week with one of our GLBC church pastors, uh, Larry Sheehan from Faith Fellowship in Marshfield. And uh, they had, they have, they left their building probably a couple years ago now, and, and put their building up for sale, and they moved into the, they've been meeting in the high school, which is not always the nicest place to meet, setting up every week, all that goes with it. And they tried to find property, and they, they had, you know, they, they ran into all kinds of problems, and 
situations and they've been praying and God hasn't seemed to be answering their prayers and it's been almost two years and there's kind of starting to get to be this disgruntled feeling in the church. A couple weeks ago, they got a call and they had wanted some early, very early on, they had approached CarQuest in Marshall because there's 12 acres of land there right along the road right next to CarQuest. And, uh, but the, they were not willing to sell the land and, and it was too high and so forth. So they've been praying and praying that God would provide property. Last week, they got an email from CarQuest. They said, you know that 12 acres? We'd like to give it to you. $250,000 valued property. We're going to gift it to you. So, beyond what we expect, sometimes it happens. The church here, you know, and yet sometimes... It's below what we expect, isn't it? We're hoping for the miracle, but it doesn't happen. Sometimes we don't expect the miracle and it happens. And that's the tension in the early church. That's the tension in our lives. I don't have any easy answers for you except to say God is sovereign. And I think one day, I think one day we'll see it because the truth of the matter is God always answers prayer. And one day we're going to realize that was true. But as we live our lives here, it's not always easy to see. But we see here the importance of this prayerful dependency. And then finally, the last thing we see here is the importance of the glory of God. The importance of the glory of God. Again, this account with Herod, now, there have been other belligerent leaders, certainly Caesar. I mean, Caesar set himself up a statue and called people to worship him, and many of the Caesars thought they were gods. So this isn't the first time someone has set themselves up as, as a god. But Herod does here, and I think what we see in Herod is simply, you know, what will happen to any person that sets themselves up against God in the end. God just speeds up the judgment a little bit here, and we see that, you know, Herod's in the middle of taking all this praise and, and God strikes him down. And in just a few days, we find that he is dead and gone. God will stand against the proud. And we certainly see that happening in this situation. There was a fable once told, and it's obviously not a true story, but it was passed down and it was that Jesus had said to his disciples, he said, uh, I'd, like you to carry a, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. And he asked each one to, to get a stone. And so they each picked up a stone, and in the fable, Peter picked up a little, a small stone that he could fit in his pocket. Uh, one of the disciples picked up a big stone and, and walked along, and about midday they sat down for lunch. And Jesus said, I want you to put the stone down in front of you, and they did. And everybody's stone turned into bread. Well, then they, got, they ate, and uh, Peter was still a little hungry from the little stone he had taken. So the Lord said, I, I'd like you to carry another stone for me. So people went and got a stone. Well, you know Peter. He got this huge boulder that he could hardly carry. And so he carries this all day till supper time. And... 
they go come to a river and Jesus said, now I want you to throw the stone in the river. And so everybody threw the stone in the river. And that was it. Nothing happened. And Peter's looking at Jesus like he's just dumbfounded. And, and, and Jesus says, Peter, for whom were you carrying the stone? And one of the most important questions in our lives and, and I think the key to what I, I think the key to humility is you know for whom am I living my life is do I have the attitude to say to God God here's my life I don't know for what purpose you want to use it but it's it's for yours to use for you to use for for your glory and and for what you desire in my life and, and we see here in, this, in the early church that that was a very important attitude because it wouldn't be long till the next disciple would be killed and the next disciple and, and the next disciple and uh, everybody but John would eventually be killed. And don't forget, these, these people had wives and families. And so it was, it was imperative that people could surrender their lives to be used for God's purposes and for His mission as, as He saw fit. And I think it's imperative for us. I'm guessing most of us here today are sitting with some circumstance or some situation that we don't like and that we have a hard time making sense of and that we're praying about. And you know what? We should pray about those things but there's a peace that comes to your soul when we're willing to release those things and somehow say, God, you can work out your purposes in your way and it will be okay. Because God has a sovereign way of working all things for the good of those who are called according to His purposes. And so this morning in this text, I, as, we, as we draw to a conclusion here, we see here... We see the importance of the mission and understanding that, you know, we're here on a mission and when we're done, we're going to see Jesus. That's why He saved us. That as we live out our lives here, it needs to be in a sense of prayerful dependency. We just need to keep coming back to Him and, and, and to understand that it is for the glory of God and for His purposes in each of our lives. Father, we thank You this morning for this passage. We thank you for the lessons that we're learning as we, as we go through this book. Father, we can appreciate the situation in, in the early church of you know, the loss of, of James and the miraculous rescue of Peter and it's so like our lives. Father, help us to learn from it. Help us to see that you are just as close and just as involved in, in James' family as you were with Peter. You have different purposes and Father, they are your purposes. Might we be able to surrender our lives to those purposes. Father, as we conclude our, our service now with just in worship to you, might you fill our hearts and minds with uh, your spirit and uh, Father, just accept this our worship today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.